Mr. Peanut, do I have you? Mr. Fisher. There he is. How are we doing? Is that a door closing or a child screaming in the background? That is my creaky chair. Creaky chair. Creaky chair. Yeah. We love that for the audio quality. I'm going to get <laughs> I'm gonna get off the creaky chair, okay? No, it's okay. I actually okay. will be at some point expertly muting my microphone while you're talking and putting in a load of laundry. So Incredible. Um, yeah. Thank you for uh, for popping in here, man. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. We're uh, we're gonna let um, a couple seconds tick away to see if some more people will join us. Um, but uh, for those who already have, thank you for coming to the second episode of Please Don't Aggregate This here on the Call In app. Uh, for those who don't know, my name is Jake Fisher. I'm an NBA reporter at Bleacher Report. Um, and very pleased to be joined today uh, by my buddy and fellow Brooklyn native, Michael Pina, if I'm allowed to tell people where you <laughs> live, even though I just did it without asking for permission. Uh, yep. And a Sports Illustrated staff writer who uh, we, we, we won't get into that part of this uh, <laughs> dynamic, but thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate you being here. Of course. Um, now that everyone knows where I live and everyone can come visit, um, that's that's wonderful. Uh, it's raining in Brooklyn today, which is pretty brutal, but this is a joy. I'm, I'm very excited to uh, to hear your voice and to be a second guest all time on this show that's going to obviously take off and become super popular now. <laughs> well... We had a good amount of listeners in here to get all the Zion buzz uh, on Tuesday. Um, not gonna lie, a little disappointed by you're you're not you're not the big draw that Zion Williamson is, Mike. I don't know what the deal is about that, <laughs> but uh, I didn't really have a specific topic I wanted to get into, and I I know there's not too many people who watch as many minutes of NBA basketball as you do, and who better to to jump around all these. Uh, topics that I did want to touch on but before we do that I, I do just want to ask you in a public setting like mm-hmm. truly how many hours of the day do you spend a week I guess that's a bad question but how many hours a week do you spend actually watching live like not live but like real full NBA game tape I mean honestly the past few weeks uh, maybe the past couple months it's been the least amount of NBA basketball I've watched for, I guess, like, I don't know exactly why the, the this season has been fun, but at the same time, jumping off the, the, uh, the subject that Adam Silver addressed at his, uh, the, the governor's meeting yesterday, there's just too many games right now. And um, it's a lot. And there's all these games where, key players are in and out of the lineup and uh, I find myself, I have severe ADD at times and I find myself, if I'm watching a game that is suddenly a blowout, I will change the channel and I'll jump into another game in the middle of it. And I I hate doing that, but I found myself um, falling into that trap over the past few weeks. So I guess to answer your question, I try to watch at least two games a night and then I wake up the next morning and watch at least one. So I don't, I don't know how many hours that is. 
Uh, it's kind of brutal when you stop and rewind and take notes and all that and have to actually pay attention. Um, but I'm also just very, very much looking forward to the playoffs to get here. Uh, this regular season is kind of beating me down, and I think everyone's ready for the awesomeness of of whatever is about to happen in this first round to to kind of consume all of our attention. So you're at, you're basically at three games a day, one in the morning and two at night. Yes. Thank you for summing up that 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 answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we got a full glimpse of the process. I mean, honestly, I take my hat off to you because it's just like not something I'm capable of doing. Like I get bored pretty easily by a Wednesday night situation with no stakes, and I feel like for my job. It's a little bit different than yours. You're you're more of an analyst and know a lot more about what you're talking about. Um, like, I think I can get away with watching a lot of the ten minute YouTube highlight videos um, <laughs> just to be able to like just to be able to like know what happened um, mm-hmm. and be able to like see you know, it's like something that you wrote about recently, maybe today even, about Tatum's passing. Um, that was today. Like, like to see in a highlight of him, like, throwing a left-handed pass to the opposite corner on a rope. Like, that's that's a moment where it's like, oh, not something Jason Tatum was doing this season, let alone last year. Like, those are things I feel like you can pick up on while at least, like, identifying and recognizing that you're not watching – the whole game and all the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 100%. It's, it, it has been tough though, when I'll be flipping around now and like we're in the tank zone right now in the, in the, in the season. And I, I, I'm honestly caught off guard by the aggressiveness that we're seeing from some of these organizations, given recent lottery reform and the play-in, et cetera. But, like, the th- I tweeted this out the other day, but the Thunder's starting lineup over the past few games has just been – like, I cover this league. I have for a very long time. Um, I feel like I'm pretty knowledgeable. And there are, like, three or four players on the floor – for the Oklahoma City Thunder at all times right now, who I just don't, I don't know. I have never heard their names before. I know nothing about their games. So that, that can be fun, even though also it's like, why am I wasting time learning their names? <laughs> it's like they're on the court for a reason and they probably won't be there next season or in the league next season. So it's, uh, it's fun. It's interesting. It's fun. It's fascinating. Playoffs, please get here. Do you not know who Xavier Simpson was? Is he the dude who is – he's like the six-footer with the hook shot? Oh, yeah, Michigan Zone. Yeah, yeah, I'm aware of him now. Um, but there's some others who just, like, was this person working at a laundromat two days ago? What is – like, what is going on with some of the players on their roster? Um, <laughs> so, it's fun. Yeah, all right. Well, I do want to get to Boston particularly – being that uh, you are still a self-identifying Celtics fan. Is that correct to say? That is, that is fair. 
Um, and I think we both are very bullish on the Celtics championship uh, prospects, um, both before and after the Robert Williams injury news. Um, but kind of as a bridge to the Boston stuff, I do want to talk about Rick Carlisle's comments today um, that I believe just came by way of the Indiana Pacers president or vice president, or his title is, of communications, Michael Preston, um, formerly of the Sixers back during the, the before and the early stages of the process days. Um, mm-hmm. He's now in Indiana. I don't think there was like a, I mean, they're not playing a game today. I don't think that was like a quote at a, at a, at a, practice or a scrum session i think they just tweeted something out with rick carlisle saying that <laughs> That's he weird. Wanted to it was weird. dispute the rumors that he was gonna be heading into the paces front office yeah and you said it was weird like what was kind of your initial reaction to that i so the indiana pacers have obviously been just uh, kind of a mess this season. Injuries abound. They make this big trade at the deadline for Tyrese Halliburton. Big and trade. big trade, uh, that's a franchise point guard on your roster all of a sudden type of trade. He's also 21 years old. And, yeah, they are safe to say rebuilding or should be rebuilding. Um, Chris Duarte is 24, but this was his first season, Tyrese Halliburton. Um, they're going to have a, a, a very nice pick and they have a bunch of players on their roster. Uh, plus they have the pick from Karis LeVert too, but they have a bunch of players on their roster who are really attractive, I think, to teams that can actually be competitive in a playoff setting. Um, and this off season, I would imagine they're going to be pretty aggressive or should be pretty aggressive in unloading some of those and just re retooling around, uh, Halliburton. So, Rick Carlisle, it, it it doesn't really make a lot of sense on the surface for him to be the head coach of a team with that profile, given his age, given his experience, um, given where you would assume he wants to be in his career right now. And I believe there was a quote he had, I think it was in December, he told NBA TV's um, or Turner's Jared Greenberg that uh, uh, he would probably not have taken the job of head coach of the Pacers if they were going to head into a rebuild. So for him to come out and uh, assert that he will be the head coach is, is, you know, it's interesting. I don't, I know that there was, there were rumblings that were kind of, uh, uh, you know, rumors about his status and whether or not he would move into the front office. So for him to kind of come out there and be defensive and uh, uh, tamp them down before anyone was actually saying anything out loud about it is also pretty interesting. Um, But yeah, like it, you know, people say things publicly in the NBA all the time. So (laughs) it's wonderful. It's wonderful that he did this. It's also like, if he were not the head coach of the Pacers next year, uh, would anyone be surprised? No. So this was just kind of startling to me being that, I mean, the rumors of Carlisle moving to the front office have, have literally been there since before he even got the job in Indiana. Um, like again, the title of the show, please don't aggregate this. <laughs> not me saying, 
this is what this is what the, the what what was going on in the ether. All right, we're just trying to provide some context to the people. And there was this goofy rumor out there that cuz cuz remember, flashback to last summer, the only reason that where Carlisle is in the, is in Indiana as their head coach is because the Pacers went through kind of a curious coaching search um, that landed on Nate Bjorkren, who, by all accounts, was a disastrous choice in terms of <laughs> interpersonal connectivity um, with players, particularly uh, young black men in modern America. Um, and I think really, I mean, there was a lot of speculation that – you know, in addition to Bjorkren's season ending with a, in a one-year tenure that the people in charge there in the front office, Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan, might be um, on the hot seat as well. So they go out and they hire Rick Carlisle, who, to be fair, NBA Intel standards, you know, not like the mon- as demonstrative as Nate Bjorkren purports to be, but not a, a bundle of kittens either. Um, so... That was an interesting choice in terms of shifting from personnel decisions in that regard. Um, But, I mean, if you wanted to have a head coach to come in and immediately immediately win and get this core that has kind of flirted with being a top-tier Eastern Conference playoff team for like half a decade but never actually done it, like that that, that was the clear guy to go do it. And... He got. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'll pop my head. Very sure he was the highest paid coach of all the coaches uh, paid last year. Um, particularly being that a lot of them um, were um, first time head coaches. And you know, then right from the jump to to bring us back to the the point of this this rant, there was this weird rumor that was coming up everywhere from every team I spoke to pretty much that have you heard that Larry Bird and Rick Carlisle might be coming on together and Rick will be in this president of basketball operations road and he'll do back the kind of like the dual coach president thing that Stan Van Gundy did in Detroit and Doc did in the Clippers and we really haven't seen be successful anywhere outside of Pop in San Antonio. Um, So that was like the first iteration of his rumor that, you know, quickly died out being that, you know, he was hired as the coach. Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan stayed on board and everything. And that was that. Then, like, pretty quickly into the fall there was, and in, in the season, there was all this talk that uh, Carlos staff hates playing Sabonis and Turner together. And they're going to trade one of these guys. And as the losses continued to mount, it, it got closer and closer to, well, ownership wants a rebuild. Um, or ownership wants the playoffs as they always have. Herb Simon has pretty routinely given um, not mandates, but directions to try to compete for the postseason by any means necessary. Um, and that the front office was actually hoping to be the ones to ignite a rebuild, which looked down the road to Orlando at the 2021 deadline. If I'm getting my years correct here, right? 2022 minus one is 2021. <laughs> Um, now like the mat, I mean, with the COVID stuff, I mean, it's just hard to tell these seasons apart now, but the magic at last year's deadline, same thing, 
tried to be tried to move from a bottom tier playoff team to a top tier playoff team, never did it. Instead of potentially getting fired, they trade Aaron uh, Aaron Gordon, Nikola Vucevic, Evan Fournier. They start a rebuild. They get contract extensions through 2025, 2026. Um, you flash forward to this year, Kevin Pritchard pulls off the deal to move Devonta Simonis for Tyrese Halliburton, like you, like you mentioned before, which, you know, opinions of that are checkered across the league, but, I mean, pretty widely hailed as a massive win for the Pacers. And then the Karis LeVert trade, I mean, they got a ton for Karis LeVert in terms of future draft capital and, you know, long-term salary flexibility with Rubio's expiring deal back from Cleveland. Like, Pritchard seems to have nailed that that uh, deadline. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, there started to be this rumor, which to finally bring this this rant to a close, it started the last couple of weeks, and I heard a lot of people um, say that it was being discussed a lot at the McDonald's All-American game in Chicago last week, that Carlisle would be going to the front office again. That was the rumor. But there was different iterations of it that, oh, maybe Ron Norred, who's an assistant on the Pacers, who was being uh, brought up as a candidate for the Butler job, who he played there under Brad Stevens. Um, he's considered to be a, a strong future head coaching candidate one day. Um, and then people are saying, oh, maybe the Butler interest is maybe him just potentially drawing up interest to get the Pacers job. And then Lloyd Pierce, who's um, an assistant on the Pacers, was supposedly going to be the, again, this is all rumor. I'm not reporting any of this. Please do not aggregate this. Um, and then the big, the big rumor of it all was that Brad Stevens is going to apparently come out of his front office perch in Boston and parachute back into Indiana and be the head coach under Rick Carlisle. So I believe that there had to have been someone who was going to write something to prevent, to, to prompt this comment. That's the only reason I would think that a head coach currently in the first year of a very lucrative four-year deal would be coming out and saying something to that effect. Cause the rumor, the rumor mill was swirling about these potential dominoes falling again for anyone listening, please do not say I reported that that was going to happen. This is what people were, were, were whispering about around the league. I just think it's fast. I mean, there's so many things I hear every day making calls around the league that I never ever write or say out loud because there's no way it's to be proven. Like there's one thing about a current executive um, in the league right now that I'm not going to say any more than that, that same type of thing with the Rick Carlisle rumors continues to get perpetrated. And I continue to call that team and they continue to deny it. So it's just fascinating to me that he, put a name to it when the rumor hadn't become public at all was really just kind of like an industry eco chamber thing. Yeah. Um, It's funny how Brad Stevens is connected to literally any, any time there's anything going on in the state of Indiana um, that has to do, has to do with the basketball team, college uh, pros. uh, He is linked there. um, Indiana's finest. Uh, born there, a native, obviously Coach Butler. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, I, I, I have no information about this. This is just me speculating. But um, I know we're about to talk about the Celtics, but I just find it hard to believe why someone would leave uh, a, a a job in Boston where 
um, the present and the future seems incredibly bright and there's a familiarity. There's a lot of ingredients that are really difficult to find in the NBA in place, um, including ownership that is proven willing to spend. Uh, although maybe not of late, <laughs> but um, it's a really, it's a really good situation. And he seemingly wants to be in a front office. Um, he was burnt out, as he said, uh, when he left the head coaching position in Boston over the, over the summer. So to go from that um, to Indiana to coach a team that is uh, a very far, they're just, they're not even really close to being good. Um, <laughs> even if, even if entirely healthy, I just, I don't see it anytime in the very near term as great as Halliburton, um, can be. So yeah, that, it just, you know, that's just a rumor that I, I have a, a hard time coming to terms with, but in the NBA, anything can happen and crazier things have certainly come into fruition. For sure. I mean, there's definitely people who have worked with Brad, who have spent time with Brad, who say that they expect him to want to get back into coaching at some point. However, that's always really followed up by not anytime soon. Um, and from what I've been told, it seems like he's kind of operating in the front office there like a small business CEO who kind of does it all on his own. Not that he's not hearing and listening to other people, but I mean, Boston's always kept a small front office and um, I don't know for sure, but there's definitely talk of certain people have already left that front office. I'll say that um, from the Danny Ainge regime. Um, so, I mean, and then to your point, like he's put together a pretty damn good team and made a lot of trades in his brief tenure so far that have, moved the needle significantly. Um, I mean, the Schroeder signing didn't exactly work out in totality, but, I mean, created um, a pretty value contract, which they were able to flip into Daniel Tice, who is obviously a pretty integral factor now with the Rob, Rob Williams injury. Um, I mean, the Aime Doka hire, you have to give Brad a ton of credit for. And me, as an objective observer of the league, I give Brad even more credit for allowing Udoka to hire his assistant staff, being that it's kind of become like an epidemic, honestly, in the NBA where front offices are not allowing their head coaches to bring on the people that they trust and want to work with um, because they want to have more and more control over the day-to-day -day, um, operations, which, I mean, I, I get that's like – now, if, if, we're, if we're looking at the NBA from an office, you know, organizational hierarchy standpoint, like the front office kind of is the bosses of the head coaching of the head coach and the coaching staff, right? But like, good A leaders hire good B leaders, who then let the B leaders hire good C people. Like that's kind of the way I think a typical organization, let alone in a sport where teamwork is at the fabric of that core of that sport. Like you would think that would be something you'd want to do, but honestly, Boston's one of the only teams Atlanta did it this summer uh, where Nate McMillan obviously was pretty massive and turned around that ship last year for the Hawks. And I think he partially got rewarded for 
that by being able to bring on people like his son to be front of the bench assistant coaches there. Um, but like the fact that that's a reward is kind of bizarre to me. And I think you got to take your hat off to Stevens and the Celtics for kind of allowing Udoka to build out a staff that has obviously done such a strong job so far this season. Yeah. Um, I did a story about Derek White earlier this season and, uh, Obviously, uh, Will Hardy, who's the lead assistant in Boston, comes from San Antonio, was with uh, was with the Spurs for the entirety of Derek White's career. And there were other people who uh, came over from the Spurs who Ime knew. And that's just one player coming over and kind of being familiar with the pieces were there, but that really helped him familiarize himself with the system and the culture in a way that has truly benefited the Celtics um, uh, this season and and going forward over the next few years and the what they're trying to build there. So can we can we talk about the Celtics now or what's what's going on? Can we can we can we gush? I mean, we're talking about them. Yeah, <laughs> the floor is yours. The floor is yours. Well, you tell – we haven't really talked about this. So you tell me um, just even, I guess, like post – let's talk post Rob Williams' injury. Um, we know he's out for – I mean, I'll just say I obsessively follow his Instagram stories, just trying to, to <laughs> catch trying to catch the good vibes that he seemingly still has, uh, the good spirits. Um, he's at the workout, the, the practice facility often. Um, but it looks like he will be out – until at least the second round of the playoffs. Uh, Boston right now is sitting for tonight's game against the Milwaukee Bucks. They're sitting Tatum, sitting Horford. And losing that game would position them to potentially get the third seed, which would give them uh, the Bulls in the first round, which I think that's the team that the Sixers, the Bucks, the Celtics really want to face in round one. Um, but just what, do, what are your thoughts about Boston in terms of their 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 status as a championship contender, uh, knowing Rob's injury, um, but also just accounting for, I guess, how dominant they've been over the past couple months? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. People on Twitter like to – certain Celtics fans and Celtics Twitter people – like to say that I was trying to break up Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Now, if anyone has followed any of my work two two years, let alone my entire career, would maybe they would know that I am probably the opposite of a take artist as you can find, and I don't even really share opinions at all publicly. Um, but like honestly. Where things were in December, like everyone in the NBA was kind of raising a brow at Tatum and Brown and the partnership and wondering if, you know, no one expected them to really engage trade conversations um, this this year. I mean, when, like from I think the moment that Boston like touched base with Philly about Ben Simmons and for everything I, I was told, they, they tried to see if they could get Ben without including any of Tatum, Brown, and Marcus Smart, which, like, obviously, <laughs> good luck with that, with where Daryl Moore's asking price was all along. 
Um, but that also kind of, I mean, people start saying, oh, well, Tatum for Ben Simmons or, or Brown for Ben Simmons makes a ton of sense. And from the get-go, like the word from people actually in the know of that situation, were like Boston's never going to even consider doing that deal like this season, maybe come the off season. And at that point, they were, I remember writing in the story a couple weeks ago, they were 11th in the East, like 23 and 24, I believe, even like in January. Um, uh-huh. And then there was a big switch from my understanding of moving Schroeder to the bench and not really even playing him in, in fourth quarter crunch time moments. That was, I think, pretty big for, I mean, they kind of just realized the way to make Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown work is to give them shooters and guys who don't hold the ball and let them do everything that like point guards essentially do in the half court. And my God, look how it worked. Um, so <laughs> I think, I think for me personally, I remember watching that. I think it was a Sunday game or a Saturday game against the Mavericks. Um, I'm pulling up the schedule right now. The Sunday, March 13th home game. To this point, they had already they were 41 and 27 entering that game. They'd already won a ton going into the deadline um, and going after the deadline. But that game, even though they lost that game to the Mavericks, I was on my couch tuning in, and that was the game where I was like, holy shit, this team could win the title. Being that, that Tatum, Brown, Smart, Horford, Robert, Williams starting lineup. I mean, they can really guard everybody. No one can really guard them when Tatum's playing like Luka Doncic out there. And then you get, you know, switchable defenders like Grant Williams and Daniel Tice and Peyton Pritchard being kind of unlocked at the bench, you know, combo guard. I mean, I, too, there aren't too many eight-man rotation out there that could really compete with that on both sides of the ball. And the defense was something that time and again, people on the league kept mentioning as like a true championship like weapon. And it just seemed to be, again, even though they lost that game, I came away kind of stunned by how like much of like a burgeoning juggernaut Boston seemed. So that's how I felt about them pre-Rob Williams injury. Um, you know, I still, and I remember when I called some people at the Celtics, um, after, uh, he got hurt, like the optimism was still pretty strong that he wouldn't, I mean, A, that he wouldn't be out that long, which we, you know, we came to find that it's this four to six week timetable. Um, but B that like, they still had kind of the personnel to withstand it and like, yeah, they keep winning. They're the number two seed in the East. So like. I mean, barring having a, a worst case scenario of playing Brooklyn in the first round and like Rob Williams would obviously be a pretty big help to protect the rim against KD and Kyrie. Like, I mean, even without him, I still think they'd have a really strong shot against the Nets in that scenario. Like, I fully expect them to get out of the first round for when he's on track to come back. Ime Doka keeps dropping Easter eggs and all of his press availabilities that he might even be able to come back sooner. He's already doing two days and all that type of stuff. Like, I mean, Boston is a scary, scary team for anybody else in the East. Yeah, my thing about the Celtics is, uh, like, they just have the fewest question marks. And as you were referencing, like, they they know their rotation. Um, they know how they want to play on defense. They know offensively now uh, 
where everybody is getting their shots, who's creating for everybody else. They've got the sets that Jalen Brown is super comfortable in, and he's looked tremendous over the past few weeks, especially um, playing the best basketball he has since, I mean, all year. Um, And when you just have your identity and you know who you are every night, I mean, they're just like machine-like in how they're running over people. Uh, Last night, their win against the Chicago Bulls was just like, that was just a master class. It was uh, (laughs) like the the Chicago Bulls, uh, it's just like, it's night. I know the Chicago Bulls have a couple injuries to key players, but it was like night and day from what the Celtics looked like earlier this season when they completely melted down in an early November game that I thought was just going to like, uh, really portend to a nightmarish season for Boston. Um, but, you know, there's just, it, it's like there are very few uh, lineup configurations that uh, would create an issue for Boston. Like they can go big, they can go small. Um, they have guys who guard their yard, to quote Bam Adebayo. Um, pretty much nobody on that team is a weak link on the defensive end. Even Peyton Pritchard's scrappy. I mean, you know he's going to play like like 13 to 15 minutes in a playoff game. Um, but it's just like there's no one who – there's no Tyler Hero on this team. Sorry to Tyler Hero. But <laughs> there's, no, there's no obvious uh, – uh, vulnerability in a in a crunch time situation on defense, and then I also think that bearing the lead a little bit, but Jason Tatum, when you have someone who like he's going to finish on my ballot for MVP, and the case is like very, I mean he's not he's not Giannis or Embiid or Jokic, but he's certainly in the Luca, Devin Booker, Steph Curry. Uh, I'm trying to think of, of anybody else who I'm, I'm missing, but th- that tier of MVP, like Tatum's right there and his value to Boston, the on off numbers are, are Jokic esque. Uh, he's come on like after this first, at the, the first few um, first couple months of the season, he was super inefficient, jacking up mid range shots, looked very frustrated in the flow of the offense. And as I wrote today on SI.com, like, the way he sees the floor now is, I mean, it's like, it's how KD sees the floor. It's how Giannis sees the floor. It's how Kawhi sees the floor. It's not like Luka. It's not like LeBron, but it's, he makes the right pass against defensive coverages that are so in tune and locked in to slow him down. And he doesn't care. And so I think that is a humongous reason why Boston like speak of the defense, which has been the best in the NBA, but their offense since February 1st is number one. Their offense since the All-Star break is averaging 122 points per 100 possessions, which is it's like a ridiculous number. Uh, and it's all because of – or not all because, but a large reason why is Jason Tatum taking this this massive leap forward and, and rounding out his offensive game. So, yeah, like to win a title, you need that that piece. That's the most important piece in my opinion. And when you have a, a an elite defense to go with it, you're just a very difficult team to beat four times in seven tries. Yeah, I'm looking right now. There are 0.7 points per 100 possessions better than Phoenix to have the top defensive rating in the league. And they come in on the season at eighth. 
sell. They've, they've made a, I mean, they were like tw- in the twenties right now, or they were in the twenties back in the mm-hmm. December ish. So they've made a massive leap. Um, and they say pretty much pretty, uh, resoundingly that the, tr- the true fabric of a championship team is ranking top 10 in both offense and defense. And they're, they're clearly there. Um, I mean, Luca is, is the name that I think of when I've been watching Tatum of late, cause he gets, he's just operating out of the high pick and roll and, and, you know, feasting on whatever, like whatever you throw at him, if you go under, he's pulling up. If you hedge, he's probably getting around and all of a sudden you're playing five on three certain times. If he gets trapped, he's able to kind of slip it down to one of Derek White or Marcus Smart sometimes or Al Horford to make a play in the four on three. He, he can make that cross court pass now with both hands. Like he's pretty Luca out there. It's pretty nuts. He's very good. Um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, as someone, I think I've watched, I haven't watched every game of his career, but I've watched a lot. And I always thought he had this in him, the playmaking. Uh, but it just, it, I thought it would take longer than it has for him to just entirely give himself over to Ime Odoka's system. And making decisions, like he's a guy who has always like, he trusts his bag. That's like Tatum just trusts his footwork. He trusts his ability to get the shot off over any contest. Uh, he trusts his physicality. He trusts his ability to create space. And he should because he can roll out of bed and get 25 points. But now he's like, when he sees the help behind his own man, instead of, you know, holding the ball or dribbling into it and, uh, you know, pulling up or uh, trying to create something that isn't there, trying to force the issue, driving into coverage. Uh, He's not really doing that at all anymore. He's trusting his teammates. He's trusting um, the system. And it's paid off dividends for Boston. And, I mean, you could also say that last year he had you know, instead of Al Horford slipping into the four on three when he got blitzed uh, last year, he had like Tristan Thompson. <laughs> so it's just like a completely different uh, situation there. But uh, Rob Williams is also like a, an ingenious passer for someone who's also like who lives above the rim. So like being able to trust your teammates, being able to like when, when Derek White sets a screen on those small, smalls, like giving it to Derek White, knowing Derek White is 10 times out of 10 going to make the right play. Uh, It just makes this team so freaking difficult to defend. And, uh, and yeah, like even without Rod Williams, I don't think that they'll have a difficult time getting out of the first round. Uh, They'll need him, I think, to beat a, a Milwaukee. But honestly, like no one else in the East should scare them too much and that includes the Nets that includes the Sixers I will say Miami is Miami and they're kind of like a mirror image team and that would be a very competitive series without Rob uh with Rob I just I I don't see any team in the east really um I mean Milwaukee could but 
I think that the Celtics should consider themselves favorites with a healthy Rob Williams based on how they've played over the past few months. They were definitely my favorite before the injury. Um, and honestly, those three teams you mentioned are really the only three teams that I'm kind of considering as legitimate. Which three? Heat, uh, the Heat, the Celtics, and the Bucks. The vibes are just off of Philly, man. <laughs> Philly is a mess, yeah. I mean, it's funny because, like, they're a mess, but they're still only, like, a half game behind Boston and two and a half behind the one seed. Like, but, I mean, that's just how talented Joel Embiid is. And, um, but, like, for sure, I just, to overcome all the shit that's kind of brewing behind the scenes, at least as it sounds, I mean, it's, I, it'd be surprising to me. Um, you know, Brooklyn... The Ben Simmons monkey wrench just doesn't seem like it'll ever come out of the toolkit at this point. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's been a fun story how they're now up in the eight seed and all these teams could be jockeying out of the two and, and, and to try to get the three to avoid Brooklyn. But, like, I just don't know how much the Nets really have in a seven-game series. I mean, no disrespect to Kyrie and KD, who are obviously ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous. I just, I don't know how much they've got compared to those other teams in a seven-game series. The the Bulls, I mean, it's just unfortunate how injuries have taken their toll on that team. I mean, I really wanted to see them at full strength in the postseason here. I know Chicago people really did, obviously. Um Cleveland, they're just they've arrived as a playoff team, but I mean, then injuries have obviously sunk them down the standings. But I don't think anyone really thought about them as a real, um, you know, contender all along. I think the Cavs have just been excited about taking this next step away from being like a rebuilding team. Toronto is going to be feisty. Like I don't think anyone wants to see Toronto, but I like Toronto. Yeah. I just I'm not ready to call them like a true bona fide conference contender yet. Can I say the one team you didn't mention that um, is also a, a, a you know the proverbial team nobody wants to face uh, if, if they make it into the playoffs? That is um, is Atlanta. It is Atlanta. I can't quit Atlanta. I, I like when you have a player. First of all, like. Clint Capella's been playing. He's just, it's been night and day from what he was earlier this season because of the Achilles thing to how he's looked over the past few weeks. Um, that's a huge, that's a huge development for this team, but like not to bury the lead again, but like number one reason why is Trey Young and Trey Young is like, I don't know. I feel like he's super underrated. I, like I, Maybe people just, like, don't understand the type of season that he's having because of how disappointing the team is. And you can put a little bit of that on his defense for sure. But I can't count on one hand, like, five players who are better offensively than this guy. Like, he's he's unstoppable. Like, he, like I, it, he's got the mid-range. Like, last year he did not have a mid-range game in his bag. This season, he's like one of the best mid-range shooters in the league. The pull-up threes that he was uh, purported to have um, in his arsenal earlier in his career, um, like now he makes those shots. (laughs) Now he's like one of the most efficient spot-up shooters. Uh, The floater is the floater. 
Uh, he's the, I think he leads the league in the number of pick and rolls run per game. And his efficiency is like top 10. Like, it's just, it's, it's absolutely absurd the season that he's having. And there's, it's, it's no, uh, I mean, there's a direct correlation, obviously, between his genius and the fact that Atlanta has ranked in the top three all year in offensive rating. Um, so I just, I, I, I see them and I'm like, I don't think anybody wants, wants that because you've got Kevin Herter, you've got Bogdan Bogdanovich. If John Collins comes back, uh, DeAndre Hunter, like they've got spacers, they've got pretty good on-ball defenders, they've got a really interesting bench, and I don't know. I mean, there's been bad juju there for a while, for sure, and like defensively, there are question marks, and it'll be interesting to see how teams attack Trey in the play-in and how aggressively they just go out of what they're what they've been doing all season offensively to punish him, but he's just, he's just so good. And in the playoffs, like he's going to play 40 plus minutes in every game. And yeah, like Atlanta's Atlanta's serious. I just like, I can't quit that team because of him. Yeah. I I looked at the standings the other day and I was like, Oh, the seasons doesn't look as terrible anymore. (laughs) And I mean, you talked about teams being able to punish him in the postseason. I mean, the Knicks couldn't last year, right? They didn't really have mm-hmm. the personnel to do so, and they tried to fix that by getting Evan Fournier. That did not uh, work out as they were hoping, obviously. The Sixers didn't really try either, and that seemed to be kind of schematic. I just don't think it was really an effort. I, th- I think the Hawks also, and take your hat off to Nate McMillan too, like they did a pretty good job of make of making him unhuntable in a sense and switching things off the ball to prevent Trey from getting brought up into action. So I am curious to see if that ever does happen. I mean, ironically, I think back to the Hawks Celtics series um, and I believe it was 2015, maybe 2016 when I think it was 2016 because I think it was the second year of Isaiah Thomas being in Boston and it was a 2-2 series, and the Hawks just then blitzed and pick-and-rolled IT to death in games five and six, and it kind of wasn't even close in those last two games. And I remember that really impacted my thinking on the NBA and team building and, like, who's good and who's not, being that, like, clearly if the league is all about, at the end of the day, winning a title, and if a certain player is not someone who – uh, it, it gives you such a glaring weakness on one side of the court that it's like kind of a, a net negative to have them out there. Like the, I really, and then all of a sudden flashback to last year, Trey changed my mind again being like, well, maybe certain guys are just better at, at hiding on defense than others. I don't know if that's a skill or not. Um, and I am really curious to see if teams can take advantage of it again, but you still don't think the Hawks, are like a, a title contender or, or a contender <laughs> at least, right? Right? You're, no, you're just no. saying they're scared. No, I'm saying, I'm saying, um, I'm not calling them a title contender, but they're just like that. Like they're like, they're like Toronto, I think. Like they are, they're frisky. They're interesting. They're not a typical, okay, like we can rest in round one as the favorite team and be fine and just like think ahead. Like you can't do that with this Atlanta Hawks team. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I do think we're getting close, though, to a point in the NBA where um, it's like the NFL or the NHL playoffs, where if you're in the if you're in the playoffs, you've got a shot. We're not there yet, but sometime in the next couple of years, um, like. You know, people are, t- oh, the East is going to be a bloodbath this year. And then people are saying, oh, well, when Denver and the Clippers are back at full strength next year, like the West is going to be a bloodbath. Well, so maybe we're close to having both conferences being a bloodbath. And if that's the case, like, I, there's just so much talent in the league right now. And it's should, I mean, the skill level seems to only be in, improving. I think we're going to get to a point in the next, two, three years where we're going to see more seven seeds beating two seeds and maybe a couple more eight seeds beating one seeds. I mean, I, th- I think, I think we're on that, that precipice. Can I give you a really hot take? Yeah, please do. If the Clippers face the Suns in round one, I'm picking the Clippers. That's a pretty hot take. And it, <laughs> you, want, you want to back that up? Um, well, I wrote about the Clippers earlier this week, and uh, they are the team that best personifies the growing divide between um, an 82-game regular season and the environment of having to win and strategize and adjust in a seven-game series. Like that, like the, the Clippers are like, they can do everything. They really can. Um, they have three point shooters. They have an incredible bench. They have, I mean, they go like 12 deep. They have a superstar in Paul George, um, Norm Powell coming back last night and just looking as good as new, uh, kind of reinforces this whole, um, belief in the team for me, but like, I just, they have so much skill and so many ball handlers and so much passing, um, so much gravity so many guys who can play on both ends. Uh, like there's just like, it's really difficult to play anyone on this team off the floor. Uh, and like, they're also just like not scared. Like this team was in the conference. Like, they basically rolled over everybody. This team's in the was in the conference finals last year. They pushed this Suns team without Kawhi Leonard. And that series, I think, was is more competitive than a lot of people remember. Um, Boogie Cousins played significant minutes in that series, also, and he's no longer on the Los Angeles Clippers, so that's a that's a feather in their cap. Um, I, I I am hesitant to even say this take out loud, even though I already did, just because I know Suns fans <laughs> are just like. They're very, you know, they're very proud of their team, and they should be. And people who cover the league are anointing them already as the the, the heavy, massive favorite because of the regular season and their total dominance. And I, and I get that. Um, I'm a tiny bit more skeptical about them. Uh, all respect to Devin Booker. All respect to Mikael Bridges and Chris Paul, Monty Williams. Like I, they're a team. You know, I was saying earlier about the Celtics. There's very few questions about the Phoenix Suns. They know who they are. They know how they want to play on both ends. They out-execute you in crunch time. They have, like, the best crunch time offense uh, that I've ever seen. But I just think that there's something different about the postseason 
and uh, about being able to go to a plan B and a plan C and a plan D that has value. And uh, I just love the Clippers and who knows about Kawhi also. And if he comes back, then obviously all bets are off, but there's just like something about um, how those two teams match up that really makes me like LA and LA just having confidence and being just entirely fearless and being full of veterans and having athleticism. It's just a, it's a team that, uh, that I think I would pick and uh, please erase this episode. If that series (laughs) actually happens. Um, Well, on that note, I mean, for everyone who's not aware, uh, the show will be saved here as a podcast (laughs) available to listen back to, and please subscribe or follow whatever the terminology is. Forgive my ignorance too. Please don't aggregate this to get updates on when our next show will be. Um, We're pretty much coming to you live every Tuesday and Thursday from 4 to 5 Eastern. Um, Yeah, I mean, the Clippers... Clippers fans, some of them have been as angry at me online as Celtics fans, being that I wrote a story pre-deadline saying that the Clippers were a potential seller, being that they weren't necessarily sure if Paul George and Kawhi would come back this year. Um, And they were exploring the trade market to see what they could potentially get from Marcus Morris and Luke Kennard. And obviously Serge Ibaka and Eric Bledsoe went out the door. And I was saying they were they were looking to make a move that would help them for next season. And the Norm Powell move was that. And sure, Paul George came back, but I didn't say he was out. I said they were prepared for him to be out. And he didn't come back to like five games left in the regular season, which when he was out on Christmas, they said like three to four weeks. So my reporting was right. Take that, Clippers <laughs> Um No, I mean, I'm fascinated to see if Kawhi comes back. I mean, that was not the plan from my understanding from people around him. And unless he thought they had a real shot at being a playoff like threat and here they are. So I'm, I'm really fascinated to see if he does come back. Um, We've got five minutes left here before the top of the hour. Um, Haven't taken a call yet. If anyone wants to call in here, please do for the great Michael Pina who watches far more NBA basketball than I do um, before. And if no one does in the meantime, um, Mr. Pina, I always do this at the end of the show. I've asked you questions for the last better part of an hour. Do you have any questions for me? You don't have to, but if you do, feel free. I, I mean, man, like I wish you told me ahead of time, I would have had prepared just a, a, a laundry list for you. Um, I mean, I want to, I want to, can we, can we like, momentarily touch on the MVP race. Yeah. Like, so yes, my, my, okay. My, then my question to you is give me your top five. Give me your, your five to one. If you, if you were submitting a ballot tomorrow for MVP. So I want to be clear on that. I do not have a ballot and I refuse to have a ballot because I think it's ridiculous that, uh, a, my general take is that awards culture is bullshit. And not just not just in sports, but in society at large, and that no one needs to have extra praise on how good they're doing. They should just be rewarded by their employer and their ability to negotiate what they're capable of. Anyway, <laughs> I think it's even more nonsense how 
Like Trey Young not being on the All NBA team, for example, this season could cost him thirty five million dollars, as it did for Jason Tatum a year ago. However, my hypothetical list. You do have a vote. That's what you said. Uh, yes. Um. So sorry to uh call you out and <laughs> everyone okay. else who does vote. Um. I my, my call me a homer as many people did when I had the James Harden stuff. I do think Joel Embiid is the MVP. Um. Wow. For what he's done scoring wise, um, defensively, and the fact that he kept this team afloat during all the Ben Simmons saga. Like I think that is more impressive than what Jokic did losing Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray being that those were just injuries and players not on the floor added with Ben Simmons being literally an added news cycle nuisance not him, but the story around him every single day for months on end. And the fact that he turned that into a positive and an opportunity to kind of put the franchise on his back. Um, I just think that's something no other person in this league has done this season. Um, so I, I, I take my hat off to him for that. Um, I do have Jokic two, Giannis three, and those guys could be flipped any day, any minute, depending on when you ask me. Um, watching the Giannis Nets game, I think it was, or maybe it was a Sixers game. I forget. One of those two games, I was just sitting back and thinking, I mean, this guy's even better than he was last year. And that's scary. I mean, he's hitting pull-up jumpers off the dribble. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he's just absolutely insane. Um, I have to give Devin Booker credit for and the fourth spot for – um, being the best player on the best team in the league all season long. Obviously, Chris Paul has been out for a while. And to be fair, to be fully candid, like the five spot, I think, is a total toss-up between Luka and Tatum. And I really just give it to Luka, being that I feel like he's got less help. Um, that is my five. What do you got? Good list, except you you completely failed uh, with number one. <laughs> um Five, I got Luca. Four, I got Tatum, and then Jan or sorry, Embiid three, Giannis two, Jokic one. Wow! And let me just say, um, so if we're if we're just if we're just saying um, as the reason why Embiid should win MVP that he helped shepherd the Philadelphia 76ers through this this storm, um, uh, the Ben Simmons saga. I mean, like. Okay, true. I guess that's 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 true. Uh, did Joel Embiid not have a hand in creating the the Ben Simmons saga? Just a little bit, would you say? No, absolutely not. At zero percentage of blame there. I think what he said got as someone who has their words taken out of context by NBA Twitter all the time. <laughs> I think what he said, I think Doc is the one, the most culpable for sparking that, honestly, yeah. Um, okay, well, either way, just it's wrong. Joel Embiid is not the MVP, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Jokic is having one of the greatest seasons um, in NBA history, and Jamal Murray is better than Ben Simmons. No Jamal Murray at all for Jokic. Michael Porter Jr., max contract. Uh, hasn't really played this season. I'm going to say this. If 
Nikola Jokic had Seth Curry and Tyrese Maxey on his team, the Nuggets would be like the best. They would the sixty-five wins. So like I, yeah, I but really that's such a nonsense point to make because there's no way to know. There's no way to say that. You can't prove that at all. Okay, well, what I can prove is that among all players in the history of the NBA who have taken 1,200 shots in a season, Jokic is the third highest true shooting percentage ever right now. And he's the best passing big man in the history of the league. He leads the league in total rebounds. His team has a top six defense when he's on the court. Uh, I just have a problem with the record. I just have a problem with... Uh, the two wins, two two wins is too much. To, no, like, no, it's no, an no. Oce- oceanic difference. No, I have a problem with um, the MVP award just becoming who has the best statistical season. You know what I mean? Like to me, that's not like when Russell Westbrook essentially won MVP only because he averaged a triple double for the whole year. Harden probably was, you know, arguably the most valuable player that season. In terms of impacting winning, and but Jokic impacts Jokic impacts winning better than every player. Hold on, okay. Then Harden basically won MVP the next year as like a course correction for that, or not as a but like he definitely won it because of that. So I don't know. I just think when you have to like every the, the the stat profile argument you just made for him, you could make the same thing for Embiid. I really do think. Like, <laughs> you can. You can pick and choose different stats to make one guy look better all the time. Anyone can do it. It's the oldest trick in the book in terms of writing an analysis slanted with some type of opinion to make it not seem like a column. Like, it's the easiest thing to do. So, I just I, – I don't like how the MVP discussion has become – it's part it's, – it's, it's partially why I don't like – I mean, it's – entirely why I don't like why it's decided by the media because it turns into this whole discussion rather than just it's fun I think it's it's I hate it I hate it so much ball RSP do you have a quick question before we get out of here we're a little over time here me yeah can you hear me yeah what's up all right I just had to chime in about the MVP thing um because look Joel Embiid um is simply the best player in basketball this year um you watch the games, it's obvious he's head and shoulders above everyone else. Jokic, look, he's great. Jokic is good. He's really good. But when you're watching the games, I understand the statistics say what they say. When you're watching the games, Joel Embiid is the best. And when you look at he's leading his team to a better record in a harder conference, um, obviously the whole thing with Ben Simmons, he kept the team together. This season could have been a lost season for the Sixers. He kept the team together. He willed the team to victory in the middle of the year, in the beginning of the year, and even down late in the year. Um, in a lot of tight games, you know, he takes over. He wins the game for them. And he's got – he's also leading the Sixers to a pretty good uh, defense. I don't know the numbers, but there's pretty much no other good defenders on this team. Thibel's good, but not great. Um, and he only plays like 15 <laughs> to 20 minutes a night. Joel Embiid is the only good defensive player on this team and he's leading them to a top 10 defense. Um, so, yeah, he's just the best. There we go. Spoken from a true Sixers fan himself. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to you, Baller SP. Shout out to you. 
We always enjoy Ballers P's questions. Um, that's all the time we got today. Um, not to be dismissive of Ballers P. Sorry to come off. I just I got to get out of here. Mike's got to get out of here too. Um, thank you for joining me, sir. Uh, if you're not reading Michael Pina at SI.com, truly, I'm not just saying this because he's here. The, the, he's done some of the smartest uh, analysis on the league all year long. So make sure you're checking him out. Um, we'll be back here on Tuesday, 4 to 5 Eastern. Um, I don't have a guest lined up yet, but next Thursday we will have Sarah Todd on uh, to dive into the state of the Utah Jazz, which I'm very curious to see what she's got to say about that. Um, Thank you again, Mike. I appreciate it, man. Look forward to hopefully seeing you in person soon. Thank you, Jake. Be easy. See you guys.